Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. You can check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis, and it's where you can sign up for live Zoom events, including this month, Barbara Haber and Matt Sartwell on how we cook in America, and the former British Foreign Secretary and Head of the International Rescue Committee, David Miliband, on the age of impunity. Coming up on the show today, Tevi Troy, former White House advisor in the Bush 43 administration and author of Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. Uh, Tevi, welcome to Bookstack. Richard, thank you so much for having me. I'm a big admirer of American Purpose, but also of you and your books, especially Reagan and Thatcher and the Schlesinger book. And uh, it's an honor for me to be here today. Well, that's very kind of you to say so. And as I say, we're delighted to have you. Um, Congratulations on the book. And perhaps before we even talk about the history, maybe you could give us a sense of what it's actually like to work in the White House as an assistant to the president. Yeah, well, I worked in the Bush administration as a deputy assistant to the president, which is one level down from the highest level assistants. Think about the domestic policy advisor, the national security advisor, those types. And it was quite a heady experience, especially since in graduate school, I had studied the presidency and I wrote my dissertation on intellectual American presidency. And I'd immersed myself in multiple presidential libraries and, and in the memos. And then to be on the other side of writing those memos, it was really... It was it was a great experience as a, an historian, uh, but also just as an American and American patriot for the ability to help shape U.S. policy for the better, at least to my mind, it was for the better, uh, was was really special and uh, really uh, just uh, it was the honor of a lifetime, I would say. And it does and it and it does give you a a very interesting perspective as you write on these historical uh, um, uh, fights and and um, the politics inside the White House that you actually know what it's like what it feels like to be there in the West Wing to see these things developing in real time. Oh yeah, absolutely. I know what it's like to have some of the tactics I highlight used against you. I know what it's like to re- read stuff in the paper and wonder who's leaking it. And so, yeah, it's uh, having the historical experience plus the actual practical experience, I think informs my subsequent work as as, as a historian, as somebody who's written three more books on the history of the White House. I'm always looking for something that my experience in the White House helps to inform. And it's, I guess it's something, even aside from uh, historians, that uh, we're interested in in popular culture, whether it's the uh, the West Wing, uh, the story of President Bartlett, or in the musical Hamilton, where these kind of rivalries being in the room where it happens, uh, famously, uh, to quote Hamilton, that uh, we want to know what is going on behind that closed door. Yeah. And having had the insight and having been inside behind the closed doors, I just think it it informs my work in a way that not a lot of presidential historians in, since uh, Schlesinger, since Arthur Schlesinger is someone that you uh, have written about so ably. Uh, Schlesinger had that ability because he was both a presidential historian and a former White House aide. And so I, I kind of see it as my comparative advantage as a historian, somebody who has both sides of the practical experience of having worked in the White House plus the understanding of the history and the memos and, and how when you write a memo or these days even an email, some future archive type person uh, who's digging in the archives like you or like me is going to find this someday and say, what was that person thinking when they wrote that? And it really it makes you think before you send that email and before you send that memo. 
Now, as the uh, the title of the book uh, suggests, Fight House, uh, they, the book tells the story of a lot of the rivalries that go on uh, inside the White House. And I mean, it's, it's interesting, isn't it, that, I mean, we say that politics has never been so vicious and divisive as it is now, but, but actually one of the lessons of your book seems to me that politics has always been this vicious and divisive. Oh, absolutely. Look, you mentioned Hamilton the Musical and uh, that... that show is basically about the internal rivalries in and around Washington, both when he's a general and then later when, when he's president. And Lincoln's cabinet, obviously, uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin wrote that book, Team of Rivals. But what I really try and get at in Fight House is this different thing that happened around the mid-20th century, which is the development of a White House staff. And once you have a White House staff, that person who is next to the president has an ability to reach the president in a way that the secretary of state or the secretary of treasury, all these people who are more important in the hierarchy, but not necessarily next to the president, they don't have that ability. And so many of the rivalries that I talk about in my book in Fight House are about, let's say, the national security advisor and the secretary of state, each of whom think that they are the the most senior officer advising on foreign policy, but only one of them is next to the president. And that's why so many of these fights are between a cabinet member and a senior White House official. Yeah, you have these uh, different kinds of uh, rivalries, as you say. Sometimes it's between the cabinet and the White House staff. Sometimes it's between the various White House staff members themselves. Sometimes, actually, it's between the president uh, and his advisors. But it, it seems as if that's hard baked into the system, and that when it works at its best, it it is a kind of a creative tension. When it goes badly, it's is when it becomes a destructive tension. Absolutely, I agree. What I say all the time is that there is a continuum. And on one side of the continuum is everybody agrees on everything and there's no integration of outside thoughts and you're inside the bubble, as it were. And that does not necessarily lead to the best policies. And one of the examples I give this is the Lyndon Johnson administration where he would brook no disagreement. And if no one is disagreeing, then sometimes you get policies that aren't working and they're unwilling to change them. And uh, so you know, we ended up with the Vietnam situation. And I highlight in the book that in Vietnam, there were a group of officers at the State Department who were uncomfortable with the policy, who thought it wasn't working, and they called themselves the non-group, and they met secretly so that LBJ wouldn't know about it. Well, that that's one side of the continuum and, and not a good side. On the other side of the continuation, continuum is complete dysfunction where everybody's fighting and nobody trusts each other and you can't get anything done. And so somewhere between those two ends on the continuum is the somewhat happy medium where you do have this creative tension where people are and competing with each other in the realm of ideas, but also at the end of the day, if the president makes a decision, they lock arms and they say, the president's made this decision. We each had our say. We each had our our voice heard at the table, and now we can move on. Yeah, it's it's one of those things, and, and in many ways a statement of the obvious, That, but I was struck time and again how administrations tried to learn the lessons of previous administrations, but then this in turn created its own problems. For example, uh, the Obama administration, uh, having we've, throughout the whole book, we've read about how process and following lines of communication is so important. Then we get to the Obama administration, they, they do this perfectly but then it kind of creates a kind of a stasis and a caution and a difficulty about making about actual decision making 
Yeah, I mean, you could get frozen and not make real decisions. Also, in the Obama administration, sometimes you had people who had special access, if you will. So uh, Valerie Jarrett, for example, was called the night stalker because she would go see the Obamas at night in the residence, which is a, a privilege that most White House aides do not have. But she had a personal friendship with the Obamas. She was able to do that. And many aides who did not have that honor and privilege and ability to go into the residence at night, felt that she was taking advantage of it to get her policy preferences heard in a way that their policy preferences weren't able to be heard. So it's good to have process and it's good to take it seriously and have people have the ability to have their say, but it can also lead to uh, paralysis in the um, in the Bush 41 administration. Uh, they they wore buttons called born to process, which meant that the, the processing was so great and so intense that they actually never made decisions. Yeah, I mean, you you talked about uh, special access. One of the things that comes through in the book are the, the, the difficulties that often surround family members, that if they are part of the administration or uh, kind of have, an, have access to, in terms of policymaking, Robert Kennedy as Attorney General would be a, the most famous example, perhaps, but uh, also Hillary Clinton, more recently Ivanka Trump, that they, they have complicated an already complicated picture. Oh, absolutely. Look, I, I talk a lot about Robert F. Kennedy, and he he was trusted by his brother, John, which is why he was really the most powerful advisor or official in that administration. But I also think he abused the power in the way he manipulated and belittled Lyndon Johnson. I, I don't think that was necessary. And John F. Kennedy supposedly even told his staff to uh, be kinder to Johnson. Well, Robert F. Kennedy never got that memo and was cruel to Johnson and would put him in uncomfortable situations that I lay out in the book Fight House and had nasty nicknames for him like Rufus Cornpone. And uh, A, I don't think it served the Kennedy administration well, but B, I don't think it served Robert F. Kennedy well because he became attorney general under Johnson and then he was subjected to a lot of uh, Johnson's uh, whims and dislikes and, and manipulations. Uh, but but l let me say this, that presidents do need people they trust and the people you trust the most are people you know before you became president. Because once you, you, meet, so you meet someone once you become president and there's always this question of, does this person have my best interests in mind or are they my friend only because I'm now president? And so it's the longest standing relationships that really are the ones that have the most trust. You know, my, uh, my late mother used to say, you can always make new friends, but you can never make new old friends. And you really want to make sure you, you maintain those friendships because those are the people who know you best, who knew you before you reached a certain stage in life. And they, uh, th there's an honesty to those relationships that you may not have with someone you meet later in life. Well, President Biden was talking about his mother on his recent visit uh, to see uh, Queen Elizabeth at, at Windsor Castle. And it, it seems to me that that's perhaps a lesson that he's learned, that uh, he his closest advisors are people that he's worked with, many, uh, many of them for decades before he's arrived in the Oval Office. Yeah, it's really interesting in the Biden administration in that there's such a push for diversity but Biden also has these people who are close to him for a long time who he trusts, most of whom happen to be white males because it's, let's face it, it's from a different era. And they're trying to integrate people with different backgrounds into the administration while at the same time they're reserving positions for these people who are very close to Biden and it creates a real crunch at the, at the top positions. 
What about the uh, the divide between the kind of the intellectuals that you've worked on in uh, one of your previous books, but characters like Schlesinger and Kissinger and Brzezinski who come from the universities? Uh, very often they're famous in their own right before they even arrive. Uh, but uh, and the tension between them and the political operatives who've spent most of their careers and their lives in politics. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned those three intellectuals, and all three of them were involved in pretty significant rivalries once they were inside the administration. I would say that uh, Schlesinger was not on the top of the rivalry, meaning that uh, that Ted Sorensen, as you uh, nobly and, and well lay out in your book, uh, Ted Sorensen was just a more powerful and more influential aide. And, uh, but Schlesinger was a f- more famous person before the administration. And there's that weird tension of Schlesinger's more famous, but Sorensen had more access to Kennedy. Then when Kennedy dies, you kind of revert to the norm in which Schlesinger is the more famous person, I would say, had a, a more productive post-administration career than Sorensen, although Sorensen's uh, book was a big bestseller. So was Schlesinger's, and I think, it, uh, I think Schlesinger's book uh, stands the test of time a little better as well, which I think you also talk about in your book. Um, and then Brzezinski and Kissinger, both of whom are academically trained national security advisors, uh, they really get into it with the corporate lawyer types who are the secretaries of state in both administrations. And I would say both Brzezinski and both Kissinger really get the leg up over their rivals in the administration. And maybe it's uh, maybe it's the academic politics that taught them, you know, the old uh, line about academic politics where they, uh, they're so bitter because the stakes are so low. <laughs> Um, I mean, Sorensen, I guess, is is unusual in that he does get a lot of the credit, uh, even at the time. Uh, but for, for many, it can be pretty soul-destroying. Um, the basic mantra uh, seems to be the, uh, that of JFK point man Kenny O'Donnell, who you quote uh, saying uh, to one, uh, one potential advisor, if it works, you get no credit. If it doesn't, you'll get all the blame. <laughs> Yeah, look, um, that's that's kind of a flip side of the uh, passion for anonymity that the Brownlow Commission set out in the late 1930s when saying what a White House aide should be. And there was this idea that these people should be top-notch people and uh, but work in the background and they, they shouldn't get the headlines. The president should get the headlines. That has changed somewhat over the years and sometimes White House aides become household names. Uh, I would say less so thus far in the Biden administration. But uh, but sometimes it happens, and it still may happen. We're we're early in the Biden administration, uh, but but these are difficult jobs. They um, they're, they're fraught with peril. There's you're always a kind of an investigation away from financial ruin uh, and reputational ruin. Uh, but they're also r- jobs in which you have the ability to influence and shape U.S. policy in in a way that no other jobs do. Yeah, I mean, it was one. It was one of the things uh, actually that comes out in Michael Dobbs' book, uh, who we had on the program last week, uh, that a lot of these characters like Ehrlichman and Haldeman, um, and uh, when when the crisis moment comes and and they lose their White House position and suddenly they're facing a kind of lawyers' fees and hearings and kind of so on, that friends have to rally around because they're they're just simply going to go bankrupt. Yeah, it's, it's very difficult. Look, I had a friend in the Bush administration who was involved in an investigation. She she really didn't do anything wrong, and she uh, you know, she was ultimately not indicted or, or jailed or anything, but she did need a lawyer. And a friend of hers who had served in the administration with her offered his services at a kind of a friends and family rate, and the White House ethics attorney said, well, you can't do that because you can't get any kind of financial benefit from being a White House aide. So she had to pay full freight in a way that if she hadn't been working in the White House – 
she would she she would have been able to get this discount. On the other hand, if she hadn't worked in the White House, she wouldn't have been involved in the investigation to begin with, probably. I mean, I've spent quite a lot of time talking about some of the more anecdotal elements uh, in the book, but there is a there's a, a key that runs throughout that you develop as an argument that there are really three elements to these kind of rivalries: um, ideology, process, and presidential tolerance. What are those three things, and and what is the balance between them uh, in the White House? Yeah, Richard, I'm, I'm glad you asked that question because I didn't want to just write a book about anecdotes. I mean, obviously, anecdotes in some ways are the selling point, right? You know, you've got these fun stories about people backstabbing or undercutting each other or leaking against each other. But is there a larger point? Is there something we can learn about not only how best to manage the White House, but how to manage any organization? And so I identify those three things that you talk about. Number one is ideological comity, and that's C-O-M-I-T, not C-O-M-E-D. And Ideological comedy means, are these people, do they get along ideologically or on the same team? Do they share the president's perspective? And if you have people with different ideological perspectives, you're just going to see more fighting. That is a, a fact of life. That said, you can't have uh, groupthink either. You can't have people who all think exactly the same. So again, there's a creative tension there. You've got to figure out what's the best way of going about it. The next thing is process. And we talked a little bit, we joked earlier about uh, born to process in the sense that the uh, process is uh, er everything. But process is really important in the White House in that it tells you who is in the meeting, what kind of memos you need to prepare for the meeting, what kind of pathway you need before conversations get to the president, and then what's the resolution and how do you carry out the resolution. And if an administration has bad process, then you're going to have people who feel like they didn't have a seat at the table, they didn't have their voice heard, and they're going to be on the other side of arguments, they're going to be bitter and they might leak to the press. They will undercut in different ways. And so you need to have some kind of clean process that allows things to move, but also move in a way that everybody feels like they had their voice heard. And then the third is presidential tolerance. And here there's a great contrast, uh, let's say, between Obama and Trump. Obama had the no drama Obama rule, and he did not want to hear it. And I tell the story in the book of Alessandra Mastromonaco, who was deputy chief of staff. And at one point, she doesn't like the way she's being talked about in the New York Times. And she sends a blistering email to the senior staff ripping on how they have leaked against her for this New York Times article. And Obama calls her into the Oval and says, that's quite the email you sent. And he didn't say anything more than that. But he made it clear that he was aware of this kind of stuff, and he didn't want to see it. Uh, Trump, on the, on the other hand, said famously said, I like conflict. And there's a story I tell in the book of on Trump Force One. This is before he's president. It's on the campaign train, campaign plane. And you have two people flanking Trump. One is Hope Hicks, a press advisor, and the other is A.J. Delgado, a lower ranking press advisor. And they are yelling at Trump both female, and they're flanking him, yelling at him while he's reading the New York Times. I know he says he doesn't read it, but he does read it. And at one point, Trump lowers the newspaper, looks at the two women screaming at each other and yells, cat fight. And then he lifts the paper up and continues reading. Now, there's a president who has tolerance for infighting. They say, why is there fight infighting in the Trump administration? Because Trump didn't mind the fact that his people were fighting. Yeah, and and that that infighting and the lack of process uh, that those were things that he actively seemed to embrace uh, during his presidency. 
Yes, that plus uh, plus uh, ideological d- disagreement or discord. You know, there are issues. Everyone talks about all the fighting in the Trump administration, and Lord knows there was, and I detail it in, in Fight House. But there are issues in which there were not a lot of fighting. Uh, judicial selection, for example, moving the embassy to Jerusalem, lowering taxes, those things. There was generally agreement ideologically, not only with the Trump White, within the Trump White House, but within the Republican Party. But on the issues of larger disagreement, both within the White House and within the Republican Party, think specifically trade and immigration. Those are the issues where you had the most intense fighting. And what what do you think about the? Obviously, this does not come under the uh, the the book, uh, and so it's difficult to to think about these kind of things as a historian. But with your commentator's hat on, what about the the Biden administration? That I mean, for example, uh, over the weekend we saw briefings against uh, perhaps against Kamala Harris, the vice president, with the White House uh, White House saying that they were unhappy with her recent TV interviews about the southern border. When you kind of think about things like that in their historical context, what what lessons do you learn and apply them to a kind of a real-time moment, if you like? Yes, it's a good question. And, and first of all, I think there's a press aspect to this. I mean, the press was looking for stories on Trump and trying to press people against each other in a way that they're not necessarily doing in the Biden administration or haven't been doing in the Biden administration as much. But with the the Kamala Harris situation, she obviously did not have a strong interview. And in having that poor interview, I think that gave the press the opportunity to start uh, pushing on that one particular issue of her really very poor answer on the southern border question. So that that's one thing. Uh, the other thing is, look, the Biden administration had a central unifying principle in the creation of the administration and throughout the campaign. And the central unifying principle was, we are not Trump, we are against Trump. And they united all the various factions of the Democratic Party. Well, now Trump is no longer president. I know he shows up in the press occasionally, but the fact of the matter is that once you're governing, there are all kinds of different issues that become flashpoints and where there are ideological disagreements, let's say, between the moderates and the party and the, and the more woke left. And I think the more those issues come to the fore, the more fighting you're likely to see. Yeah, it was uh, one of those things that it reminded me uh, of the, the bit in the book where you're just about to go into the White House and uh, you phone a friend of yours uh, who'd been an advisor in the uh, Clinton administration uh, to ask for any advice. And his very succinct advice to you is watch your back. It was great advice. I'm still friends with him and uh, I appreciate it. And I called him up when the book came out and told him that I used his quote. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, it, it, it is a, it's a place that's uh, fraught with peril. Uh, there are people who they look at your job and they see they want that job or they look at the job that you want next and they want that job. And, uh, and so that's one aspect of it. There's the positional aspect, but there's also the policy aspect of it. People think, you know, you may be more conservative or less conservative than they are and they want to get their perspective heard over and above yours. So it, it, it's, it, there's a lot of sharp elbows in the white house and it's, it's the reason I was able to write this book and have so many good stories. And, you know, I wonder what about the role of ad- advisors uh, when, for example, President Biden has been at the G7 summit, as we record, he's just about to go into a uh, summit meeting with uh, President Putin of uh, Russia. Uh, how how do advisors work with, their, with the principles, with the president to prepare for something like that? And particularly as it's one of the rare occasions 
elections when the president is really out there by himself having to kind of perform, use advice, think on his feet and so on? Yeah, well, these foreign summits are interesting, Richard, in, in a way that you'll find useful is that uh, there's usually a guy called a Sherpa. And the Sherpa is an advisor. He works for the National Security Advisor who's supposed to synthesize all the various advice that you're getting from different departments, whether it's from the U.S. Trade Representative or the State Department or the Treasury or the internal policy councils of the White House, be it the Domestic Policy Council or National Security Council or National Economic Council. And that Sherpa is kind of the lead person who is supposed to prep the president for these kinds of events. And I think that is a useful construct given how complex these international organizations are and how if it, you just make it a big free-for-all and everybody's advising, it would be hard for the president to get the focus they need to make the kind of really, you can only make three top-line requests or three top-line demands in these sessions. So you need that focus. And I think one central unifying advisor is, is a key person. One interesting thing is Look for the Sherpa because it's usually one of the highest IQ people in the entire administration. They usually are very top-notch people. It's it's interesting though as well because it's another one of the themes that you really bring out uh, in the book that as well as uh, rivalries within the, the, the White House, you have these institutional rivalries, none more so it seems to me from reading the book than with the State Department, uh, which does not actually come out particularly well from the book, I have to say. Um, your own administration is a, is a good example where, uh, as you write it, the State Department leaks are constantly undermining the, admi uh, the administration. Yeah, and the State Department is, is a bit of a messy place, I guess I will see. There are so many different agencies and all of them have a very high opinion of themselves. And I remember when I was in the White House, I chaired a deputies council meeting where we had a complex issue and the State Department sent three different people from three divisions within State Department. And when I went around the table to ask what everybody's opinion was, those three divisions gave three different opinions. And I said, the reason you guys have a secretary is you're supposed to come to the White House with one opinion from the State Department. And next time we have this meeting, I expect you to do that. So the, the State Department is a, a bit of a messy bureaucracy. Uh, they list, they, they obviously exist from administration to administration with the same people. I mean, the, the career staffers are there forever. And so they all have good ties to the press. You often see either leaks from the State Department or White House paranoia about leaks from the State Department uh, as a constant theme in multiple administrations because they, they don't often agree or, or they often do not agree with what the president's perspective is. And uh, that leads them to want to get their own perspective out there in the press. Yeah, there's a there's a great story in the book of uh, Cyrus Vance, uh, Secretary of State under under Jimmy Carter, uh, essentially walking out and and saying they're all idiots in the in the White House, um, and 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 it's and it's quite clear that he he includes the president in that. Yeah. You know, that was the famous pygmy interview that he gave on there. But what was an interesting thing about the Cyrus Vance, Richard, is that he offered to resign probably about a dozen times. Um, and then on the last time, finally, Carter accepted the resignation. Uh, you know, there's only so many times you can play that card. Um, what about a party out of the White House? Obviously, uh, the Republicans now are, are kind of going through a kind of a decision-making process about uh, their future and policy and so on. Uh, how does how does that work once you're outside of the White House and advisors are kind of vying for uh, for position? Yeah, it's an interesting question, Richard. So, so on the one hand, I intentionally wrote this book about 
fighting within administration, meaning within people of the same party or ideological perspective. Because it's not interesting to write about, let's say, Mitch McConnell and Joe Biden being on the opposite side of an issue. They're supposed to be. One's a Democrat, one's a Republican. So this is this is all intra, intra rather than inter-party stuff. Uh, the intra-party stuff when you're out of power is less focused because there are so many more and different power centers, none of them as relevant or as important as the White House is when, when you're in power. So right now, all over Washington there and across this great land, there are different people strategizing for what the next Republican administration's policy priorities should be. I, I think within Congress, the debate is less interesting because it's largely, for the most part, not exclusively, but largely we're opposed to the Biden agenda and how, how do we do that. Uh, but in terms of new ideas and new organizing principles, you know, you've got conversations in Florida and Ron DeSantis is probably going to be running for president uh, next time around. And then obviously South Carolina, Nikki Haley. And then you've got a whole host of Washington think tanks. And now you've got other think tanks. You know, I, I've written an article I, I share with you later. Uh, it's called Lose an Election, Gain a Think Tank, where there is this repeating tendency whenever a party loses an election they create new think tank or think tanks in, in response. And you've seen this before with the uh, Progressive Policy Institute uh, after the Republicans had defeated the Democrats three straight times in the 80s and early 90s. And then the Republicans created some new think tanks after Bush loses in 92. And then the Democrats, after Bush's uh, Bush 43's win, uh, create the Center for American Progress, which still has a huge impact on the, the Democratic side. So again, it's more diffuse when you're the out party, but there's all kinds of, I would say, intellectual rivalries. And I don't mean that they're all intellectuals who are doing it, but they're, they're competing over ideas. But once you're in the White House, you're competing over people. And it's really, it's, it's much more sharp elbowed and it's much more primal and it's much more face to face than this diffuse network of people across the country trying to set the new agenda for the party. And yeah, I mean, you're one of the Republicans leading intellectuals. What direction do you think they should be heading for and where will they stand in 2024, do you think? Well, thank you for, for the compliment. Look, look, my thought is you've got to make it about policy, not people. And it can't be a question in 2024 is Trump, not Trump. It can, it's got to be a question of what are the policies we're going to pursue. Uh, any politician is only around for a relatively limited window. Uh, Trump himself is, you know, <laughs> he's up there in years. Uh, it's not someone, it, you can't count on it always being a Trump position or non-Trump position. You've got to say, these are the things Republicans stand for, and these are the positions we're going to take. Everybody says, oh, well, look, it's a Trump party now. Well, you know, 12 years ago, it was a George W. Bush party. And whoever rests that mantle Whoever wins that crown in 2024 in terms of winning the primaries, that's going to be the person whose perspectives shape the policies of the Republican Party going forward more than anybody else. So the book is Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. It's written by my guest, Tevi Troy, and published by Regnery. But for now, Tevi, it's a terrific read. Congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. And again, I love your writing. I love your books. And I look forward to reading more of them in the future. Well, that's very kind. Uh, so that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Demir Marusik. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. Thank you.